You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the 225th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. With this week's show, we're going to finish up our discussion of the Battle of Prairie Grove, which took place on December 7, 1862, not very far from my hometown of Fayetteville in northwest Arkansas. As we've mentioned before, when I made a trip home this past December, my dad and I took some time to go out to Prairie Grove Battlefield State Park, and we posted some photos from that visit on Facebook this past week, so y'all can check those out. And there's even a special bonus photo of Tracy sporting some Razorbacks paraphernalia, which somehow got posted there along with the Prairie Grove pictures. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) Okay, so anyway, back to our story. As you guys will recall, on the Union side, we have Francis Heron and the Missouri divisions arriving at Prairie Grove and finding that their path to link up with James Blunt and his Kansas division is blocked by the Confederates. Blunt is still down at Cane Hill, where he has been waiting to see if Heron or the Confederates will get to him first. Right. Uh, And speaking of the Confederates, the rebel commander, Thomas Hindman, had originally planned to attack Blunt at Cane Hill and crush him there, but then Hindman received a major surprise when he got news that Heron and the Missouri divisions were unexpectedly approaching after they'd made an extraordinary forced march to come to Blunt's aid. And so Hindman was forced to change his plans. He decided to scoot around Cane Hill, get in between Heron and Blunt, overwhelm Heron first, then turn and attack Blunt, defeating each federal force in detail, that is, separately. We said last time that Thomas Heinemann never actually intended to fight at Prairie Grove. That's because, with his new plan, he wanted slash needed to fight Heron as far away from Cane Hill as possible. But Prairie Grove was only six miles away from Blunt's position at Cane Hill. However, despite this major wrench being thrown into his plans, Heinemann decided to stand pat at Prairie Grove, with half his army facing Heron and the other half facing the direction from which he expected Blunt to appear. But we pointed out that by making this decision, Hindman was surrendering the initiative, and with it his ability to dictate the flow of events. In short, by deciding to fight at Prairie Grove, especially with his limited supply of ammunition, 
Hindman was really just placing his army between a rock and a hard place. After reaching the Illinois River and discovering Confederates drawn up across the way on the forested hill known as Prairie Grove, Francis Heron assumed the rebel force blocking his path to Cane Hill consisted of only a portion of Hindman's army. It didn't occur to him that the entire Trans-Mississippi Army was in his front. The Confederate line was located in the trees along the natural crest of the hill, and so Heron couldn't actually see what all he was up against. Despite his reduced numbers due to straggling, and in spite of the exhausted condition of those still in the ranks, Heron attempted to break through and continue his march to Cane Hill. Possibly he felt he had no other choice, since without cavalry he couldn't, one, search for an alternate route, or two, probe the enemy position for weaknesses. When the Federals tried to force their way across to Illinois by way of the main ford, they were driven back by Confederate artillery fire. Rebuffed at that point, Heron ordered a road cut through the timber a stone's throw away, so his men could get to another ford beyond the range of the rebel guns. It was noon when Captain David Murphy's Battery F, 1st Missouri Light Artillery, splashed across the river at that other ford and opened fire with his six six rifled guns. Additional Union batteries crossed the river and entered the fray, and Heron soon had 20 guns in action, 18 of them rifles, and all of the Union guns better served than their Confederate counterparts. The Federal gunners smothered the rebel artillery that was on the forward slope of Prairie Grove, then shelled the crest where the Confederate infantry and cavalry was positioned. After blasting the hill with 450 shells and 60 solid shot, Murphy reported, quote, I am satisfied that there is somebody hurt over there. Some Federal infantrymen in Heron's command were so worn out after their epic march to the battlefield that they fell sound asleep in spite of the tremendous noise from the bombardment. Others watched the performance of the Union guns with a kind of awe. One Iowa soldier wrote of how, quote, It was a fearful sight to witness. The ground shook as from an earthquake. The smoke obscured the sun, and the beautiful Sabbath day was turned into a veritable hell. While the bombardment was still in progress, the Federal infantry formed a thin line of battle in the middle of Crawford's Prairie. Encouraged by the success of his artillery in silencing the rebel guns, Heron directed Colonel William Orme, commanding the 2nd Brigade of the 3rd Division, to press forward with three regiments and advance to the high ground ahead. But the absence of available Union cavalry forced Orm to use the 94th Illinois to protect his left flank, and that meant his assault force consisted of only two understrength units, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Bertram's 20th Wisconsin and Lieutenant Colonel Samuel McFarland's 19th Iowa. Their combined strength was barely 750 men. Fortunately for the Federals, the nature of the terrain around the Borden House actually worked to their advantage. The advancing Yankees remained hidden in the shadow of the slope until they reached the brow of the hill. 
Only then did they gradually come into view of the rebel defenders, who were positioned so far back from the military crest that they couldn't see what was happening on the forward slope of the hill or on the prairie below. And although we've mentioned it before on the podcast, this might be a good time to refresh your memories about what exactly we mean when we refer to the military crest of a hill. Well, the military crest of a hill or ridge is usually a line located below the natural or topographical crest of the hill, and it's the point where you can see all the way down the slope and fire all the way down the slope to the base of the hill. As a side note, this is also an an advantageous spot because as a defender, you won't be silhouetted against the sky behind you. And being silhouetted against the sky behind you is bad because it makes you an excellent target. Anyway, here at Prairie Grove, the Confederates were positioned back on the natural crest rather than a bit farther forward on the military crest so they couldn't see all the way down to the base of the hill or out onto Crawford's Prairie. So there you go. Okay. Well, at any rate, the focal point of this Union assault was Captain William Blocker's Arkansas Battery, located on the brow of the hill near the Borden House. The 20th Wisconsin swept up the slope and overran the Rebel Battery, but the Federals soon found themselves under fire from all four Confederate regiments in James Fagan's brigade. Then the colonel of the 39th Arkansas, Alexander Hawthorne, called upon his men to charge and drive the Yankees off. Hawthorne reported that, quote, they responded with an Arkansas yell that rang out loud and clear above the roar of battle. For a few moments, the fight was terrific. A Wisconsin officer described the action in a gully just west of the Arkansas battery, where the struggle was the most intense. Quote, the line in the ravine began to thin out. Wounded men dragged themselves back out of the fire, and occasionally an unhurt man arose and made a dash for the rear. I saw our colonel's horse stagger riderless down the slope and fall dead. The colonel limped after, using his saber as a support. He was covered in blood. The major was forming the men as they came back from the ravine, down the slope below the guns, but our fight for that day was done. After suffering 50% casualties, the 20th Wisconsin retreated down the slope. As bad as that was, the 19th Iowa fared even worse. Coming up behind the left of the 20th Wisconsin, the Iowans entered a deadly trap. Moving through the orchard behind the Borden House, they unknowingly advanced into a sharp angle in the Confederate line. Suddenly, the rebel infantry and Marmaduke's cavalry opened a terrific fire on the Yankees, from front and flanks, with muskets and shotguns. Intense fighting raged for several minutes at close range. One Iowa soldier later recalled how, quote, The rebels all at once rose out of their hiding place and began to fire at us. If we had remained in the orchard but a few minutes longer, we would have all been killed, wounded, or taken prisoner. End quote. As it was, the casualty rate in the 19th Iowa was 55%, the highest of any regiment at Prairie Grove. The commander of the 19th Iowa, Lieutenant Colonel McFarland, was one of the killed. 
Also among the dead were Colonel Joseph Pleasance of the 37th Arkansas and Major Robert Chu of Chu's Arkansas Sharpshooter Battalion. Having repulsed the attack by the 20th Wisconsin and 19th Iowa, Confederate Division Commander Francis Shoup ordered Fagan to pursue the fleeing Federals. The 34th, 35th, 37th, and 39th Arkansas all emerged from the timber and swept down the slope, hot on the heels of the retreating Yankees. But as soon as the last of the Wisconsin and Iowa infantrymen dashed or limped past the Union gun line, Heron's artillery opened up on the advancing rebels with devastating rounds of canister. An Iowan reported with grim satisfaction that the oncoming Arkansans, quote, received a fire so terrible it seemed to lift them up in the air and hurl them back into the forest. Like giant shotgun blast, the Federal canister knocked down men like tin pins, and the Confederates scrambled back to the safety of the woods atop the hill. They left behind more than 100 dead and wounded in the Borden wheat field. When the counterattack by the Arkansans of Fagan's brigade was broken up and hurled back, it prompted Heron to order another assault. And so he directed Colonel Daniel Huston, commanding the 2nd Division, to go in with his other three infantry regiments. Because Huston kept the 20th Iowa back to secure his right flank, his assault was only marginally stronger than Orm's. Colonel John Clark's 26th Indiana numbered 450 muskets, while Lieutenant Colonel John Black's 37th Illinois consisted of just 400 men. The second Union attack was a repeat of the first. The two regiments passed around the east side of the Borden House and entered the deadly ground of the orchard. Hit by intense rebel fire, the 26th Indiana on the left staggered to a halt and then fell back in disarray. Captain Robert Braden wrote, As we came off the field, the bullets were flying seemingly as thick as hail, and nearly everyone was struck either in his person or clothing. In moments, the Hoosiers suffered a casualty rate of 45%. After the 26th Indiana gave way, the 37th Illinois found itself facing the same Arkansans and Missourians who had shredded the 19th Iowa here a short time before. The 37th was a veteran regiment, and two of its companies were armed with fast-firing Colt revolving rifles. But the odds were simply too great. The Illinoisans fell back to the Borden House and made a brief stand there, before withdrawing to the safety of the Union artillery line. By maintaining their composure, combined with the intimidating firepower of the Colt repeaters, it allowed the 37th Illinois to escape with only an 18% casualty rate. And just a side note, but the 37th Illinois' commander, Lieutenant Colonel John Black, had been severely wounded at Pea Ridge nine months earlier, and at Prairie Grove he still carried his right arm in a sling. At the Borden house, a bullet smashed his left arm, but Black refused to leave his men until he was ordered to the rear by Huston. Surgeons saved his arm, and Black received the only Medal of Honor awarded for the fighting at Prairie Grove. 
Interestingly, his brother, Captain William Black of the 37th Illinois, received a Medal of Honor for his heroism at Pea Ridge. And so that made the Black brothers the first siblings to earn the decoration for their actions during the Civil War. Cool. Uh, Well, here, with the repulse of another federal attack, once again, Fagan's Brigade of Arkansans surged down the hill in pursuit. And, once again, the Confederate ranks were blasted by canister. In Borden's cornfield, as in the adjacent wheat field, a hundred or more rebels lay dead or wounded in front of the Union gun line. The 39th Arkansas's Colonel Hawthorne noted bitterly, quote, Every time that we drove them down the hill, their batteries would open furiously upon us, throwing solid shot, shell, canister, and grape. That gruesome scene closed the fight on the eastern half of the battlefield. Then around three o'clock, Heron's troops wondered what it meant when an unidentified battery fired two shots from atop West Knoll, a half mile to the northwest. At first, the Federals feared the Confederates had moved around their right flank, but they soon spotted the stars and stripes flying above the unidentified guns. That meant that although Heron's ill-fated attempt to break through the rebel army had failed, his battered command was nevertheless going to be all right, because James Blunt and the Kansas Division had arrived on the battlefield. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. At Cane Hill, by mid-morning, Blunt had concluded that the Confederates had pulled a fast one on him and had bypassed his position. This was an alarming development, 
since if Hindman was on Fayetteville Road, it meant that Heron and the Missouri divisions were marching into an ambush. Blunt sent couriers racing to warn Heron of the danger, but they were turned back by swarms of Confederate cavalry. That was enough for Blunt. Between 9 and 10 o'clock, the Kansas division hurriedly departed Cane Hill. But instead of heading directly toward Prairie Grove, as Hindman expected, Blunt first hurried north to ensure the safety of his supplies and wagons at Ray's Mill. Only after detaching a reinforced brigade to secure his supply depot at Ray's Mill did Blunt then turn east toward Prairie Grove, six miles away. Heron's artillery was in action by that time, and the Kansas Division marched toward the sound of the guns at a furious pace. It must have been an amazing sight, because instead of advancing in column on a single road, the Kansas Division surged across the relatively open countryside in a huge mass. Each unit set its own pace and chose its own path. Some infantry regiments jogged nearly the entire way at the double quick. Blunt reached the battlefield sometime after 2 o'clock, accompanied only by his escort and a section of artillery. He rode to the top of the highest hill in the vicinity and unfurled a United States flag. Then he ordered two shots fired to announce to Heron's embattled command that help had arrived. As you guys will no doubt recall from the last show, Hindman, anticipating Blunt's arrival from Cane Hill, had posted half of his army, led by Division Commander Daniel Frost, behind a stream called Muddy Fork. But throughout the day, Frost waited in vain for Blunt to appear, wondering, well, come on, where was the Kansas Division? The mystery was solved in mid-afternoon with the Federal Commander's dramatic appearance on West Knoll, northwest of Prairie Grove. Blunt had taken an unanticipated path to Prairie Grove and so appeared from an unexpected direction. One can only wonder what went through Heinemann's mind when he realized another major wrench had been thrown into his plans. It must have been a bitter pill for the Confederate commander to swallow when he recognized that since he had spent hours holding back fully half of his army to meet a threat that never materialized, he'd therefore missed a golden opportunity to crush Heron with his entire force. With Blunt's surprising appearance from an unexpected direction, Frost was no longer doing any good at Muddy Creek, so Hindman directed him to come up and deploy his troops on the west side of Fayetteville Road, in line with Shoup's men who were to the east side of the road. As Frost came up, Colonel Robert Shaver's 1,200-man brigade of Arkansans deployed on the right, nearest the road, and nearest Shoup's line. Then Brigadier General Mosby Parsons' 3,100-man Missouri Brigade was in the center, and Brigadier General John Roan's Reserve Brigade of 2,100 troops, mostly dismounted Texas cavalry, was on the left. Meanwhile, the Kansas Division arrived on the battlefield. The men caught their breath, units sorted themselves out, and Blunt made preparations for an assault. Blunt doubted his 5,000 men could drive the rebels off the hill, but he felt that he had to do something to relieve the pressure on Heron. To kick things off, for an hour, 18 of the Kansas Division's guns, 10 of them rifled, 
bombarded Frost's rebels who were there across the way atop the western part of Prairie Grove. Under cover of this barrage, Blunt's infantry and some cavalry formed a line of battle on Crawford's Prairie. On the right, Colonel William Weir's 2nd Brigade consisted of the 10th Kansas, 13th Kansas, and 3rd Indian. On the left, Colonel William Cloud's 3rd Brigade was composed of the 11th Kansas, 2nd Kansas Cavalry, and 1st Indian. A half-dozen cavalry regiments extended the line to the west and secured Blunt's right flank. When the 1st Indian on Blunt's left connected with the 20th Iowa on Heron's right, Blunt and Heron had finally linked up, and Thomas Hindman's fading hope of defeating the Federals in detail flickered out. Around 4 o'clock, Blunt's line advanced up the slope on either side of William Morton's house. On the Confederate side, the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, and 16th Missouri of Parsons Brigade, supported by Arkansas regiments from Shavers and McRae's brigades, moved down the slope to engage the Federals. The result was a confused clash, really an enormous skirmish, amongst a tangle of trees and brush. A trooper in the 2nd Kansas Cavalry recalled how he and his comrades on the Federal side Quote, rushed forward, sheltering themselves as much as possible behind trees, and opened a brisk fire on the enemy, and kept it up some time. We did not fight by volley, but each man fired when he saw some enemy to shoot at, and the enemy fired in the same manner. End quote. As that indicates, this went on for some time, but the Federals were unable to drive off the numerically superior Confederates. So Colonels Weir and Cloud finally pulled their men back around 5 p.m. Thinking the Yankees were on the run, Parsons and Shaver started off in pursuit. In the rapidly fading light of the December day, the rebels swept down the slope and surged across Morton's wheat field toward the Union artillery line. And you can guess what happened, right? The 18 Federal guns here fired round after round of canister at the oncoming Arkansans and Missourians. Lieutenant Henry Palmer of the 11th Kansas wrote, They staggered back like drunken men, then rallied and pushed on again. No one could deny the Confederates made a valiant effort, but gallantry could only accomplish so much in the face of the fierce Federal cannon fire, and before long the rebels retreated back to the top of the hill. Among the dead left behind was Colonel Alexander Steen of the 10th Missouri, and with that, as darkness started to cover the landscape, the fighting came to a close at the Battle of Prairie Grove. That evening, Thomas Hindman met with his commanders, and they concluded that the Trans-Mississippi Army was too low on ammunition to risk a renewal of the fighting the next day. In a larger sense, though, there was no reason to stay put, even if ammunition had been plentiful. That's because the objective of the campaign, which had been to defeat the Federals in detail, was no longer attainable now that Blunt and Heron had successfully linked up. Furthermore, while Heinemann had no hope of reinforcement, thousands of stragglers from the Federal's Missouri divisions were making their way toward Prairie Grove. 
That meant that by morning, the Yankees' casualties from the just-finished combat would be made up by those men just arriving at the battlefield. Hindman really had no choice. There was nothing for him to do except take his army back over the Boston Mountains to the Arkansas Valley and wait for another opportunity to have a go at the Yankees. And so around midnight, Shoup and Frost led their divisions away from Prairie Grove, slipping away south on Cove Creek Road, with the wheels of their artillery pieces wrapped in blankets to muffle the sound. Marmaduke's horsemen brought up the rear. On the Federal side, when the fighting ended on December 7th, James Blunt was convinced that the Confederates would continue the fight the next day, and he prepared accordingly. However, when he learned that Heinemann had slipped away, Blunt chose not to pursue. Instead, the Federals remained on the field to bury the dead and tend to the wounded of both armies. As for the butcher's bill at Prairie Grove, The Trans-Mississippi Army is thought to have brought just over 11,000 men to the battle and lost 204 killed, 872 wounded, and 407 missing. Nearly all of the missing were unhappy conscripts from Arkansas who defected to the Union side. Due to severe straggling in the Missouri divisions and due to the brigade of the Kansas division that was left behind to guard Ray's Mill, the best guess is that the Army of the Frontier probably put between 7,500 and 8,000 men into the fight at Prairie Grove. Of those, 175 were killed, 813 wounded, and 263 missing. Almost all of the missing were cavalry troopers captured during the initial early morning surprise attack by Marmaduke's rebel horsemen. Prairie Grove was soon overshadowed by the larger clashes at Fredericksburg in Virginia and Stones River in Tennessee, but its significance was undiminished. That's because at the tactical level, Prairie Grove was a draw, but in strategic terms, It was the most significant Union victory in the Trans-Mississippi after Pea Ridge. An Iowa officer aptly summed up Prairie Grove as a, quote, powerfully stunning blow from which the western portion of the so-called Southern Confederacy never recovered. At Prairie Grove, a major Confederate effort to reassert control over northwest Arkansas and to threaten southern Missouri and the Indian Territory was decisively turned back. Instead of marching north to the Missouri River, the rebels were forced to withdraw back to the south across the Boston Mountains. On December 23rd, from his headquarters up in St. Louis, Department Commander Samuel Curtis informed Blunt that John Schofield, who had recovered from his illness, was on his way back to Arkansas to resume command of the Army of the Frontier. With Schofield coming and Hindman going, Blunt decided to take one last swing at the Confederates. He and Heron cooked up a scheme to make a raid across the Boston Mountains and strike the unsuspecting rebels down in the Arkansas Valley. The Federals set out on December 27th on their raid and, meeting little opposition, reached the town of Van Buren on the north bank of the Arkansas River the next day. There they captured some wagons full of supplies and seized a number of steamboats. 
Caught by surprise, Heinemann rushed troops to the scene, and the Confederates deployed on the south bank of the Arkansas, opposite Van Buren. Some shells were thrown across the river, but neither side displayed much enthusiasm at the thought of crossing the Arkansas to actually come to grips with the enemy. The greatest damage done by the raid wasn't even a deliberate act on the Federals' part, but occurred when Confederate commissary and quartermaster officers over at nearby Fort Smith panicked and set fire to wharves and warehouses. Not satisfied with burning down the Fort Smith waterfront, they also torched two fully loaded steamboats. The episode was a devastating blow to Hindman. Fort Smith had been his main supply depot on the river. The flames consumed irreplaceable goods and supplies, and with nothing left to protect, Hindman withdrew from the area and left Van Buren to the Federals. Blunt, pleased with the mischief he had caused, pulled out of Van Buren on December 30th and headed back to the north side of the Boston Mountains. In his excellent book, Fields of Blood, William Shea writes that the Van Buren raid marked the end of the Prairie Grove campaign. Distressed by the ease with which the Federals had crossed the Boston Mountains, Confederate Department Commander Theophilus Holmes ordered Heinemann to move the Trans-Mississippi Army south to Little Rock. Heinemann offered no objections, and during the first two weeks of 1863, the Confederates slowly made their way down the Arkansas Valley. The weather was terrible, and the 180-mile march was a miserable, demoralizing experience. Horses and mules died by the hundreds, and men straggled or outright deserted in tremendous numbers. Abandoned wagons and discarded arms and equipment marked the passage of Hindman's army. Holmes acknowledged, quote, The retreat from northwestern Arkansas was a most disastrous affair. Out of 12,000, not more than 6,000 effectives arrived here. A few weeks after its arrival in Little Rock, Hindman's much-diminished command was merged with Confederate forces in central Arkansas and lost its identity as a separate military organization. While these developments were unfolding, stunning news arrived from eastern Arkansas. A large Union amphibious expedition had started out from the Mississippi River pushed 50 miles up the Arkansas River, and on January 10th and 11th, 1863, struck Arkansas Post, the only fortified position on the river below Little Rock. We'll look more closely at the federal attack at Arkansas Post as part of the Vicksburg story arc, but the Army contingent was led by John McClernand and William Tecumseh Sherman, and the Navy force was commanded by David Dixon Porter, and they succeeded in capturing Fort Hindman there on the Arkansas River, along with about 4,800 rebel prisoners. The disasters of Prairie Grove and Arkansas Post, occurring barely five weeks apart, essentially knocked Confederate Arkansas out of the war. The news of the Arkansas Post debacle was the last straw for Thomas Hindman. Exhausted and exasperated, he requested a transfer to Tennessee. When Holmes refused his request, Hindman appealed directly to Braxton Bragg, the commander of the Confederate Army in Tennessee. 
Heinemann's request for a transfer was ultimately approved by Jefferson Davis as part of a shuffling of personnel in the Trans-Mississippi. Yep, uh, you see, Jefferson Davis had finally realized that old Theophilus Holmes simply wasn't up to the challenge of managing so complex a departmental command as the Trans-Mississippi. So the Confederate president appointed Lieutenant General Edmund Kirby Smith in his place. On the federal side, Schofield officially resumed command of the Army of the Frontier on New Year's Day, 1863. He should have been pleased at Blunt's and Heron's success, but being a bitter and petty man, Schofield instead immediately set about trying to smear his two subordinates. Despite Schofield's efforts, Blunt and Heron were promoted to Major General with Samuel Curtis's support. By the end of February 1863, the Kansas and Missouri divisions were back in their respective states of origin. The Army of the Frontier never again operated as a whole. In fact, it was officially dissolved six months later. James Blunt returned to Kansas following the Van Buren Raid and resumed his duties as commander of the District of Kansas. Francis Heron remained in Missouri for several months after the Prairie Grove campaign, despite a steadily worsening relationship with Schofield, but then he was transferred to Ulysses S. Grant's command and took part in the Siege of Vicksburg. And as we wrap things up for this story arc, we thought we'd let William Shea have the last word, since he was our primary source of information for these episodes. In Fields of Blood, he writes, The Prairie Grove campaign was the last significant Confederate offensive west of the Mississippi River. It was also the last large-scale military operation atop the Ozark Plateau. Cavalry raids, irregular warfare, and outlawry continued to exact a dreadful toll in lives and property, But after Prairie Grove, the Civil War in the Trans-Mississippi entered a new phase. The Confederates abandoned nearly everything north of the Arkansas River, and the Federals shifted their attention and their resources to other theaters. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Civil War in the Southwest Borderlands, 1861 to 1867, by Andrew E. Masick. And no, Tracy didn't make a mistake when she said 1867. Oh, okay, so this is another recommendation that doesn't have anything to do with Prairie Grove, but it is an excellent book that deals with the war west of the Mississippi. Okay, way west of the Mississippi. Well, seriously, we wanted to recommend this book for a while now, but weren't sure where we'd fit it in, so we thought we'd go ahead and use it here, since, except for William Shea's Fields of Blood, which was specific to Prairie Grove, we've kind of been offering you a grab bag of book recommendations in this story arc. Anyway, if you have any interest in what was going on in the Southwest during the war years, or if you just like to explore underappreciated Civil War topics, we highly recommend Masick's book. He puts forward the interesting thesis that the conflict, as it played out in the Desert Southwest, 
is really best understood as a series of interrelated, small civil wars fought among and between numerous indigenous groups, U.S. Hispanos, Mexicans, and Anglo-Americans. It's good stuff. So that's the Civil War in the Southwest Borderlands, 1861 to 1867, by Andrew E. Masick. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We wanted to let you guys know that next up on the podcast timeline is the Battle of Fredericksburg. So from Arkansas, we're headed back to Virginia, and we'll be working our way through the story of Ambrose Burnside and the bloody federal disaster there along the banks of the Rappahannock River in December 1862. As we wrap up this episode, though, we want to be sure to take a minute to give a shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Richard, Zane, and George. And thanks also to George for the nice things he had to say about the podcast on Twitter this past week. That made our day. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we'll start setting the stage for the Battle of Fredericksburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.